All right, ahead this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, the Bible says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children, with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye, what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They, say, they said unto him, We are able. And he saith unto him, we, we, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand, not my left, is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called unto them and said unto them, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever shall be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is an interesting passage of Scripture here, but bottom line question, especially as we get towards the end of this passage, is who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? There's a lot of people who say this is the greatest baseball player, the greatest fisherman, there's the greatest uh, CEO, the greatest company, the greatest, um, you, you name it, race car driver, whatever you want to put on it. But really, who is the greatest? And a lot of times in our society, uh, a lot of the greatness really is looking at personality, looking what they achieve or what they accomplish, um, kind of things that they do, things that they move and make, things like that. And that, in, in our society, that's kind of what we term as great. Um, a lot of it does have to do with personality. But uh, biblically speaking, I believe that who is the greatest? It's the, great, the greatest person is the one who denies self, serves God, and serves others is the one who follows the example of Jesus Christ himself and serving others for the glory of God. Last night I was actually talking to an old college buddy of mine. We were kind of reminiscing about our, our college days and he told me about the first time he visited the college. We went to, both went to Northland Baptist Bible College over in Wisconsin. And uh, anyways, he, re, he told me at the time that he first stepped on campus there. He wasn't a student yet. He was just kind of looking around the campus and he uh, was observing when he got to campus, there was a student that was mowing the lawn and he looked very tired. Uh, we don't have to mow yet, guys, but you, you understand the feeling, right? But nonetheless, he was mowing the lawn and looked tired. And so then he said a man in a suit came over and stopped the student. And then he overheard him telling the student that, stop there and you needed to get a little rest. And so they did. The student got off the mower. And then the man in the suit, though, hopped on the mower and then he continued mowing for him. The man in the suit. Later that day in the chapel service, he discovered that this person was Dr. Les Ola, the president of the college. My friend said, that for me confirmed that this was a college I wanted to go to. This man practiced what he preached. Doc O, as we affectionately called him, modeled servant leadership. You don't know many people, college presidents, that would stop and mow the lawn, especially in a suit. <laughs> but that was Dr. Les Ola. He grew up in the, in the UP in Michigan poor family and all that. He grew up as a logger and very had a kind of a speech impediment, uh, had some other difficulties, but the Lord worked in his life and, and he surrendered to the will of God and he went into ministry. 
And uh, he didn't realize it, but pastoring in a few churches as a youth leader, traveling with Life Action Ministries, and then eventually uh, becoming, for many years, the president and then chancellor of Northland Baptist Bible College, Northland International University, where I attended. School is no longer exists. The ministry is still there, but not as a, as a college, per se. But nonetheless, DACO had a personal effect in my life as well. I remember the first time I went to, to North myself, I was in high school, and I went there for a heart conference. It was a pastor's conference that uh, they, have every, they would have every, actually this time of year, January, and, and into February. And I remember looking at the list of speakers that would come, a few names I knew, and then there was a, a name there that said Les Olala, and I was like, who is that? And that was the point. He was, it was nothing about him. It was all about the Lord. He was all about servant leadership. And I greatly respected Dr. O, still do today in his ministry. And in a, in a sense, we see Doc O's life modeled uh, based off of what the scriptures say here in front of us today. And I want us to encourage us as we think about who's the greatest, that we would think biblically of what it means to be great in this world and great in our lives. Are we relying or simply doing things in our own strength to make our name known? be honest with you, in the name of Aaron Broughton really isn't much to follow after. But my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worth following. And so, with that in mind, as we look at this text, I, I, I've been challenged personally through this. I love it. I love how God works in my life, and I pray he works in yours as well, and as our church family. As Jesus and his disciples, they were going up to Jerusalem. Look with me back in verse 17 of this chapter. It says, And Jesus was... And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart of the way and said to them. Now, one little thing I need to explain here. Uh, whenever you find the words here, and you find it often, especially in the Gospels, of people going up to Jerusalem, that is geographical in nature, because Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, and pretty much anywhere in the country, you have to literally ascend to Jerusalem in order to get there. So it's going up in elevation, but it's also... A spiritual journey as well. Here Jesus is getting his sights on towards the very end of his ministry on what he came to do was to give his life a ransom for many. And so he talks to his disciples. He says in verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and other scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to, be, to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Jesus clearly lays out, actually in more detail, he actually mentions this earlier, uh, earlier on in Matthew, Matthew 16 and 17, for example, he mentioned that he would die, but now there was, in a sense, a sense of urgency in his mission uh, of why he came to this earth. Jesus here foretold of his betrayal. He goes into a little more detail here in this passage than before. He goes into more detail talking about his betrayal. Obviously, that'd be by one of his own, Judas. It would be also of his trial uh, that he would be brought to the chief priests and scribes. They would condemn him to death. This is trial. He talked about the sufferings that he would endure, the mockings that he would endure, and also the death, the horrific death that Jesus Christ would take, would take upon himself, and that's the crucifixion. And praise God, he didn't end the story there. He says on the third day he would rise again. Jesus foretold clearly of his mission of why he came to this earth. And he wanted his disciples to know about it. But it's interesting here uh, that as Jesus foretold, the disciples didn't understand. If you look at the kind of parallel passage in Luke 18, for example, the di disciples, they were just listened and they kept quiet. They didn't say anything. Maybe they didn't understand. 
They evidently didn't because they were still bickering over who's going to be the greatest even in the upper room. Okay, they were still wondering about this. They still didn't get the picture of what Jesus was here to accomplish to do. After Jesus rose from the dead, then a lot of things became more crystal clear for the disciples. But nonetheless, this, this is what happened. But the horrid, horrid sufferings of Christ would result, as we see here, in the resurrection of the Son of God. This is interesting, though, that this is, in a sense, a paradox, as the tragic death of Jesus would really serve as an, as an act of service that Jesus would do. He'd give his life a ransom for many. He would become a source of life to those who would be spiritually dead, his disciples, and then to each and every one of us today. He gave his life a ransom for many. What a beautiful passage this is as we think about it. This is what Jesus is going up to, a very important message. I don't know about you, but when I was actually talking with the teens this morning about if you had to take a time machine and go back in time, where would you go? And a lot of the teens, and you've got to be proud of them, especially parents of the teens here, got to be proud of the teens because they said, I would go back to maybe something that Jesus did, maybe a sermon he preached or something he did. Could you imagine being around when Jesus said these words? You would, I hope, would be listening to every word he said, <laughs> hanging on to that. Our teens had, I, I think, uh, some understanding of that. I'm very proud of the teens for that. But this is something, what would it have been like to been there when Jesus said these words? Well, it's interesting. I like to think it went one ear and out the other. Ever have someone like that in your life? Okay, you tell them one thing, be in that one ear, out the other. I think that's what happened with the disciples as we see here as well. Because as Jesus, kind of going back in this, all of a sudden we have here, then came in verse 20, then came the mother of Zebedee, Zebedee's children with her sons. Who's the sons of Zebedee? That's James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, closest disciples, in fact. And here they come, worshiping and asking, basically, what? Uh, grant that my son sit, one on the right hand and one on the left in that kingdom. Okay, so she's asking, uh, and if you look at Mark's gospel, it, it really says they are the ones saying it, but nonetheless, they're using a good Jewish mother to kind of get, get some things going on in, in, you know, in the future for them, uh, some benefit at least out of it. So with that in mind, as Jesus is saying here, Jesus did tell the disciples that he would reward them in the kingdom that awaited, uh, even the privilege of ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Go back just one chapter to Matthew 19, and look what happens here, starting in verse 27. I want you to see this. It's really interesting. It says here in verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, unto Jesus, Behold, we have forsaken all and follow thee. What shall we have thereafter? He just talked about the rich young ruler who saved up all these possessions. He says, sell thy goods to the poor, and then you'll have riches in heaven, okay? Then Peter comes and he says, Lord, we've done that. We've done that now, okay? And so, as, as Peter says this, Jesus then says in verse 28, he, he says about a coming reward. Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory... Uh, the regeneration there is referring really to the new life that's to come, okay? The new world, in, in a sense. It says, uh, the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory, and ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay? So Jesus is making this declaration just a little bit before that the disciples are going to be rewarded. They will be ruling, in a sense. So now, the disciples, those twelve, are jockeying for position, if you will. All right, and here come, who's the first one up to ask? Well, it's James and John through their mother. Okay, okay. So when you see that here, we come now to this passage in verse chapter twenty, verse twenty, and verse twenty-one, talking about which side would they sit on, the right or the left? Uh, so with that in mind, it's interesting. 
they had in their mind a place of prominence and prestige for basically in a way that they've earned it. Uh, they have forsaken everything, therefore they should be rewarded. God, look at what we have done. Okay, But the kingdom of Christ will be drastically different from the world. Why do we say that? Because look at the very end of, look at verse 16, Matthew 20, verse 16. It says, And so the last shall be first, and the first last. For many called, but few chosen. Okay? So in other words, the idea of, of greatness in God's kingdom, in God's economy, is drastically different than what we have here, uh, what, what we see today. Okay? And even back in their time. People want to get in line. They want to be the first. They want to be, they get the best job. They want to get the highest rank. Whatever it may be, you work your way up to that. Okay? But the idea of God's economy is the, sim- is the opposite. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Very important. So in other words, God gives us rewards not based on our, what we have done, but based on His grace through the death of His Son. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, Jesus tells a story or a parable concerning the kingdom of heaven's like unto a, a householder who had a vineyard. And he was paying different people throughout the day to come and work in his vineyard. And guess what? They all earned the same at the end of the day. And people were upset about that. Well, we've been here all day, and these people just worked here for an hour. That isn't fair, but that isn't God's economy. Okay? So the idea is that first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Many are called, but few chosen. So very important as we see this. So Jesus is going to flip on his head what it means to be great, as what the world says. Okay? And now, like I said, in between that parable and between... The request of James and John is these verses that Jesus is focused on giving his life for all. He's serving. He's a servant, coming in as a servant and dying for us all, for the sins of the world, including those disciples that is right in front of him. Very important. So we see, there's, we're looking at three different things today in this passage. Now we're going to look at verse 20 through 28. There is a request for greatness that we're going to see. There is a prerequisite for greatness, and we're going to finally see the model of greatness today. First of all, the request for greatness. Verses 20 through 24, talk about that request. Again, uh, Zebedee's mother uh, comes, and she, her name is Salome, by the way, if you look at other, other passages of the Bible. Her name is Salome. She comes asking again, worshiping or bowing down before Jesus, desiring a certain thing. What wilt thou? Grant that my two sons may sit on thy, uh, one on the right hand, the other on the left, in thy kingdom. All right. This is a place of prominence in a kingdom, especially in that time, to have uh, seats right next to the king meant that you are very, very important. We see that throughout other passages of scriptures uh, as well, how prominent it was. Think of uh, Joseph, for example, who is basically there sitting on the right hand of, of Pharaoh, for example. All right. There's many other leaders we could probably say in the Bible that, that had that happen. But generally, that was a place of honor. It was a place of respect, and really it was a place of authority as well that Jesus was given. Like I said back in, in chapter 19, uh, these 12 apostles would be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. They would have some at least delegated authority that they would be in charge of. Okay, That's what they were looking for. But in this request, uh, what was happening is here, the prayer of the Zebedees, the whole family, mom included, okay, really was not for God's will to be done, but was for their will to be done. We've been talking on, on Wednesday nights about prayer and about the importance of prayer. And we talked about one hindrance to prayer is when we pray and we ask amiss. In James chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 3. In this, the Zebedees, they were asking amiss. They were asking after their own lusts and their own desires. And that was happening. And Jesus kind of calls them on that. 
He says here in verse 22, Jesus answered and said, you know not what, yes, you don't know what you're asking. He says, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and the baptiz- baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say, we are able. The idea of the cup and the baptism, this has the idea of partaking in his coming sufferings that he just told them about here a little bit ago. Are you able to suffer with me? Okay. And they say, we are able. And it's interesting. Verse 23, Jesus does say this. Ye shall in, drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, it's not mine to give, but shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. They're asking the wrong question. But here's the point. Jesus here was focused on the cross. And the disciples, they were focused on a crown. That was the difference. Jesus was focused on the cross while they were focused on a crown. They were looking for that title, that prestige, to be even seen around Jesus. It's interesting that James and John would partake in the sufferings of Christ. It's interesting that they would actually be bookends of the fates of the apostles. James was the first apostle martyred back in Acts chapter 12. Later on, John, the beloved, would die on the Isle of Patmos, most likely the last of the the apostles who would die. They served as bookends of the fate of the apostles. Really interesting when you see this. Their place in the kingdom, though, was not earned but rather it was prepared by the Father. That's what it says here in in verse 23. Okay, so it's again, it's where the Father places them. Jesus is simply submitting to the will of the Father. I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon says concerning the reason Jesus came to this world. He says, Jesus comes not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. So he correctly says of the rank of his kingdom, it is not mine to give. How thoroughly did our Lord take a lowly place for our sakes? In his laying aside of authority, he gives a silent rebuke to our self-seeking. I don't know about you, but a lot of times, even in Christianity, we look to one-up each other. Maybe not intentionally, but it comes across that way. I think we're all guilty of that to some degree. I think sometimes we need to look at what Christ has modeled for us. Deny self, serve God, and serve others. Well, what was the result of that? And we look at this request of greatness. Well, what was the end result of this? Look in verse 24. And when the ten, the other disciples, heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers, the two brethren. The indignation we hear is there is anger. The indignation is interesting. I like what one commentator says. The indignation of the other disciples was from jealousy, not from holy humility. They were not upset from the disciples like, oh, disciples, how could you do that? No, they, if anything, I think this reveals something greater. I like what, uh, what Criswell says about this. The fact that the other disciples were angry against the two brothers indicated that they were no better because in their heart and in their spirit, they also wanted first place. They were all wanting that position. What throne will be ours? What place will I have? What tribe? I mean, you think about it. If you, had, if you could rule over any of the 12 tribes of Israel, I mean, who would want? I'll do Judah, all right? I'll do Ephraim. Some guy over here gets Gad or Asher. (laughs) You know, we kind of feel a little bit left out, right? But in God's, that's the thing. In their mind, they just felt, why didn't we think of that first? We should have asked of the throne first. They all were thinking the same thing. They all were saying, by the way, go later on around the table, around the Seder table when they're celebrating the Passover. 
what happens? They're bickering again. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It's interesting when you look at the placement of where people were sitting around Jesus, around that Seder table, who was the one leaning on Jesus' breast? John, okay? So in a sense, he, he's again jockeying for position in all year. That's kind of what's going on here, okay? So when we look here, the request for greatness, they were asking something beyond, and Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. To sit on this, you're trying to earn it. You're looking for a crown, but it has to first of all come through the cross. And that's why Jesus said, you're going to have to suffer with me. The thing is this, when we go through life, when we come with these decisions, it's a saying I've said before here, there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. When it comes to what they were asking, Lord, give us a place where we can be seen, where we can have some authority, we can do you know, it all for the name of Jesus, of course. It's interesting, their heart really came out. And yet, yes, they would suffer indeed. But they had to understand that the crown only comes because of the cross. The sufferings of Christ. And what Christ has asked us to go through him. What does he call us as believers to do? Because you're saved, man, you've got an easy life ahead of you. It's just a moment of time before God takes you up to heaven. You're going to have everything laid out for you. Your Christian life is going to be so easy. What does Jesus said? Those who would follow him must do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The idea of taking up a cross in that time, today people wear crosses as jewelry. We have even behind us here, these are I guess, fixtures. We're, we're kind of used to that idea. But in that time, to take up a cross or that cross be on the way to your crucifixion, you were going to one place and one place only. That was to your death. You literally died yourself. You were dead. Can you think today, Someone taking behind them or wearing a piece of jewelry, an electric chair, a guillotine, a firing squad, whatever you want to call it. The glories of that, will we, will we do that? No, because this is the thing. The crown that we receive comes because of the cross. And Christ has asked us to come and follow with him in his sufferings. This is a reminder for us, even when we take up the Lord's Supper, which we did recently, we're remembering the sufferings of Jesus Christ, that we are not immune from sufferings in the name of Christ. Now, we praise God in this country, we've had it relatively easy. We're not guaranteed that, though. There are Christians uh, who definitely, because of standing up for Christ, have felt some blows to some extent. In other countries, it's a lot worse. But all of us are called to bear the name of Christ, and in that, we may suffer for the name of Christ as well. And that's what Jesus was getting here, too. But as we see this, how does then someone become great? How do we become great in the kingdom of God? As we see this, we looked at the request for greatness, but let's look at the prerequisite for greatness. How do we, get, how do we become great? It says here in verse 25, Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they are the uh, great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whatsoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. Whosoever be chief among you, let him be your, or, or your minister. Let him be, whoever is your chief, let him be your servant. As we look at this, Jesus is saying here, he's first of all pointing out, well, look how the Gentiles look at authority. Look at how they look at greatness as position. The, the, the Gentiles, what do they do? They exercise or they lord over the dominion. They lord over those people. They exercise great authority. They flex their muscles when they want to because they can. They're the authority. That could be governments, that could be kings, that could be just individual rulers as well. But here's the thing. Jesus is pointing out here that 
in verse 26 here that the values of a secular society do not apply among you. They don't apply to you. The values of a secular society don't apply to you. It says here in verse 26 again, but it shall not be so among you. This is not how we serve one another. This is not how we live for the Lord. We don't do it to flex our muscles over people. We don't do it to get our own way. We don't get it to push our own agenda. Even doing it in the name of the Lord. This is something that comes really from, from the heart, and we're going to see that in here more in a second. But as we see this, Jesus is saying here that true greatness is service. True greatness is service. We think about that. I like this. What is greatness? What's involved in that? The key to greatness is not found in position or in power, but in one's character. The key to greatness is not found in position or power, but in one's character. I like what, one, what Warren Worsby said this, and he's talking about this. Remember back with the Zebedees, they, were, they, they asked Jesus for position. Uh, asking is another word we can say is praying. They prayed to Jesus in a way, Lord, give us these positions. It was a prayer, if you will. And in commenting that, Warren Worsby makes this quote, to improve our praying, we must improve our serving. That's humbling. If our prayers do not make us better servants, there is something wrong with them. I don't know about you, when I read that this week, I went, ouch. And that's okay. We need that. To, if our prayers don't make us better servants, then there's something wrong with them. Because so many times, what we are really praying, folks, if we're really honest, Lord, let my will be done. We're just, we're just wanting God's approval. We may or may not know what God's will is for that specific thing. There's things in the Scripture it's very clear what God's will is. But as we work through different issues in life or just different decisions we make and how we do things, a lot of times we're just simply, Lord, let my will be done so I can be greater and I can move on in life. But here's the thing. I like what Warren Worsby concluded in that quote. He says this, Do our prayers cost us something? Do our prayers cost us something? In other words, when you pray to God, and I trust you do, when you pray to God, has God changed your life? Are you allowing God to change you? Does it cost you something? In following Christ, there is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus Christ. What is that? Denying self, serving God, serving others. That's what it amounts to. How to become great is by serving. Putting others before you. Not your own agenda, but putting others before you. You know what? That's counterculture from the world. The world says totally opposite. The way you get ahead in life is what? You work hard. Run over people if you have to. Get around them. Do whatever you can to get up their ladder. And then you're going to be great until you retire. And then everyone will forget you about you at the job. They'll give you a nice watch, you know, and that's about it. You know? But seriously, really, what are, you, what are you living for? Are you living for just to get a certain promotion on your job? What are we trying to do? To get a certain status in life? Or are we really living for what matters most, and that's for Jesus Christ himself? He bids us to take up our cross and follow him. He calls us to do that. And he calls us to not to how to be great, not as the world says, but to serve. France says in his commentary, self-importance is the desire to be noticed and respected. 
I think we all would like that. We like to be respected at least. But the ambition, though, to make one's mark and impose one's will on the other, this is the value scale of the rat race, not of the kingdom of Christ. Like I said, we are just trying to be better than the Joneses. All right, so to speak, you've heard that. They have one up more than the other, but it's a rat race. It's a race, you know what, you'll always be frustrated. You'll never have enough. But you know what we need? We need to be people of prayer, people of service, people who follow the Lord. Dave Gutzik said in his commentary, Real ministry is done for the benefit of those ministered to, not for the benefit of the minister. Many people are in the ministry for what they can receive, either materially or emotionally, from their people instead of what they can give. A lot of times we, people do ministry, they try to serve only to get something in return. Uh, do we really think to act that way? I think sometimes we do, sometimes without realizing it. We kind of expect a little, we expect at least a nice thank you at least. Uh, maybe something in return. I, but nonetheless, this is very important. What is he talking about here? This is from verses uh, 26 and 27. But said, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. The word minister is the Greek word uh, diakonos, is where we get the word deacon from, okay? It has the idea of being a minister. Basically being a busboy in the restaurant. Lowest position. You're just simply there serving. You're simply there doing what needs to be done. All right? You keep moving forward. Whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Let him be your busboy, is the idea. Verse 27, whoever will be chief or first among you, let him be your servant. The word servant here is the Greek word doulos, which is where we get the word for slave. All right? There are many uh, servants who are slaves, but all slaves are servants. They always do what the master requires. Here's the thing. Uh, what, is a master, what does a slave really do or a servant do in God's economy? A, a slave or servant is always happy to make the master look good. That's it. A slave or a servant is always happy to make the master look good. Whatever you do in your life, make God happy. Make God proud. That's what we do. It. It's not for my sake. It's for his sake. This is very important. You see here, the goal of Christ's kingdom is not to rule, but it's to serve. I like what Doc Les Olala, who mentioned earlier in the message, he said this. He said it often. Leadership is not lordship. It's servitude. Leadership is not lordship, it's servitude. That's something that I, every day, have to look at this person in the mirror. I've got to remind myself, Lord, I need you. Lord, I have to walk with you. Lord, deny self, serve God, serve others. It's very important. All of us need that. So we see here the, the request for greatness, the prerequisite for greatness, what's required. And now let's look at the model of greatness. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister... And to give his life a ransom for many. The word minister simply means to serve. Came, Son of man came not to be served to, but to serve is the idea. The mission of Jesus Christ was to save people from their sins. And now it's revealed in the substitutionary death of the servant of the Lord. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. The suffering servant. Uh, I want to read to you just a verse there. If you want to follow, you can. Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12. It says this. The servant of the Lord, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteousness, righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors. And he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. 
That's exactly why Jesus came to this world. Not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to serve. That's the idea. Could you imagine going to a restaurant maybe this afternoon or tomorrow or whatever, and uh, you go in there and the, and the waiter or waitress sits down, and they come to you to the t- and you're going past it. Hey, can you go get me some water? Hey, where's my meal? Could you imagine if the waiter did that to you? You'd be out there in a heartbeat. You definitely wouldn't leave him a tip, right? But Jesus Christ did exactly that. He came, though, to serve, to be a servant. Is the idea. The ransom that he paid, the ransom here was money paid to obtain a freed, the freedom of a slave. As Barclay said, a ransom is something paid or given to liberate a man from a situation from which it is impossible to free himself. In our sins, it was impossible for us to be free. We can't. Therefore, Jesus himself, because of his death on the cross, he ransomed us. He paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. We needed someone to take our sins away, right? So as we see this, Jesus received nothing from himself. He was life-giving and giving of life. No service is greater than that of to redeem sinners by his own death, and no ministry is lower than to die in the stead of the sinner. That's what Spurgeon said. So who is the greatest? Who is then the greatest? Biblically speaking, it's the one who dies to self, serve God, and serves others. It's the one who follows the example of Christ. And it's interesting, at the end of the Gospels, we find James and John's mother, Salome, the very first per- the person that we're reading here in this passage here, we find her at the cross with Mary, Mary Magdalene, and the others. And she's at the cross. And we find here that this mother of James and John did not see two thrones beside Jesus. Rather, she saw two crosses with two thieves beside Jesus. Doing exactly what he said here, he did not come to serve, but to be served, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. For whosoever call, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What an interesting situation. Look for two thrones. No, there's two crosses. Jesus bids you come and die. Take up your cross and follow him. What will we hear at the end of this life is this. Well done, thou good and faithful ruler. <laughs> well done, my good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. And really what we do in this life, it's a few things. Brother Eldie, we talked about him today. He was faithful over a few things. And if we're faithful to him, what does Jesus say? I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Who is the greatest? If you want to be great, serve. 